Mushroom, this is some of my best work. I'm your host, Jane Rocker. Shepard went from playing high schools on Australia's East Coast to sharing stages with Sam Smith and Rihanna. After the song, Leading the Charge, some of George Shepard's best work, Geronimo. Geronimo is a massive song, not just for the band. It charted around the world, particularly in Europe. The band came together as a duo, George with sister Amy, who features in a future episode of this podcast. They were joined by another sibling, Emma, and other friends to become Shepherd. It was at the end of an Australian East Coast tour playing back-to-back shows at schools that the gem for Geronimo was captured on an iPhone minutes before going on stage at a club in Melbourne. Here, George Shepard, the story of Geronimo and why it's considered some of his best work. Well, George, thank you so much for taking part in an episode of Some of My Best Work and to talk about Geronimo, a song that really I think anybody that doesn't know it hasn't really been living. (laughs) Tell us a little about why you chose this song to sort of hero in on and, and discuss about what it means to you. Um, well, I guess Geronimo was was sort of the first song that really, you know, broke us through to the mainstream music industry. And, uh, you know, it's afforded us a whole host of opportunities. And we've been able to travel off the back of this song for a bunch of different festivals and, and ma- massive tours and support acts. And um, yeah, there's just, there's been no dull moments since we wrote this song. So I figured it would be the best song to uh, to talk about, right? Yeah, absolutely. So take us back to when the song was actually written. I read an interview that Amy might have given was that the foundations of it sort of were touched on in Melbourne but then worked on later back at home, wasn't it? Yeah, that's correct. So we actually did a tour. Yeah, before anything had happened, we did this tour called Rock the Schools and it was a tour where we had to go from town to town. We, we hired a van and we drove from Sydney to Melbourne, stopping every day at a different school along the way and just doing like a half hour performance. And it was right at the time when our first single, Let Me Down Easy, was just being added to radio. So it was a really exciting time for us. And, you know, everything felt very new and fresh and, you know, the possibilities were endless and we were having such a good time on this tour. Once we hit Melbourne, we'd planned to do this, this show at the, uh, I think it was called the Ding Dong Lounge or the Ding Dong Club or something like that. It's, Ding Dong it's now, Lounge, absolutely was. It's unfortunately not there anymore, which is which is a real shame. But we did this show at the Ding Dong Lounge as like the the final little leg of the tour in support of Let Me Down Easy. And just before we were about to go on stage, our guitarist and co-songwriter Jason, he was walking around backstage with his guitar, just just kind of noodling around and warming up his fingers as he does. And he came across the DJ booth right at the back of the stage, which was, uh, you know, made of this this kind of just balsa wood. It was really, it was not very well built. <laughs> and um, he walked into there and, and his boots started making this like really, really like reverberous thud as he was walking around. And so he just like sort of started stomping his foot and it was just this really like oof, 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 like four on the floor beat. I think, you know, we'd been listening to a lot of folk music at the time, like Mumford and Sons, Lumineers, that kind of music. And so Jason just started started playing this this riff, which is which is the opening riff to Geronimo, that doodle ding ding doodle ding doodle ding ding. Um and that's that's all he had at the time. And so he he ran and got Amy and myself, 
the other two songwriters and he goes, Hey, just, just listen to this. How cool does this sound? This, this stomping uh, rhythm and this kind of folky guitar riff. Um, and as soon as he started playing it, it was just, it was like a light bulb moment went off in my brain. And I, I immediately had that intro um, verse melody uh, and I just, just kind of out of nowhere, just said, "Can you feel it?" Gonna do, 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 do. And that was it. And we just, it just had a lot of energy, and it was so much fun that we just pulled out our phones really quickly. This is like two minutes before we're going on stage. Uh, yeah, we just, we just quickly got a voice memo recording down to that. That was that, and we went on stage and performed uh, the show that we were meant to perform. The Ding Dong Lounge was like the Cherry Bar before it. Were very iconic sort of live music venues. Uh, in Melbourne. So I love that connection back to, to my hometown anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we loved, we, we've played the Ding Dong Lounge a couple of times and um, that was the final time that we played there. So we, we do have fond memories of that place and, and obviously playing in Melbourne. So I'm glad that, yeah, I'm like you, I'm glad that that's the, that was the origin of this song. And so now tell me, because the song itself is released in early 2014, like it's Feb. So this is all happening the year prior. Is that right? Yeah. I think it would have been about August, something like that. August a year prior, 2013. In terms of some of my best work, what is it about the song that really heralds it as such for you? I think it was right at the time when we were really kind of coming into our own and realizing who we were as a band. And it was just that prime time where we were we were really excited to be on the road and, and everything was fresh and new. And we just had that like electric, youthful energy just in our songwriting. Even though we've made songs that have been similar to it, I still feel like Geronimo just just has this this vibrancy to it, like this undeniable electricity that people just hear it for the first time. And even even to this day, you know, eight years later, we're still getting parents and, and families and kids and adults and grandmas and all these people from all walks of life just messaging us and saying they've only just now heard it. And straight away, it's just got something about it where people hear it for the first time and they can't help but just feel that energy, you know. There's just an, an electricity to it. It's not that long ago, but it kind of is in, in terms of music, isn't it? Because so much happens in a year, although not much in the last two. But you kind of get the drift, mm. I guess. You release music, you tour it, and you're on the road. And what's working musically one year isn't the next. What was happening with you as a band at that point in your careers? And, and what do you reflect on? that kind of go, wow, like we did that. How amazing to have experienced it. It was still very fresh and exciting to us. We had that um, that youthful enthusiasm where anything is possible and and we hadn't sort of done all of the big tours yet. We hadn't, uh, you know, gone to LA and tried all the songwriting sessions and it, we, we didn't know that there were limitations to what we were eventually going to be doing. It was just this like, yeah, almost an ignorance in a way of just like, yeah, we could play on the moon if we wanted to. Like right now we've got this this endless possibility about our band and that came through in our songwriting. And so tell me then when it comes to recording the song, what studio were you in and how easy was it to sort of nut out the rest of the song? We actually had to finish writing it. So we, we got back to Brisbane and Jason, Amy and myself were sitting around our dining room table just at our home in Brisbane. And we were going through all the voice memos, trying to figure out what we were going to write next. And we came back to this this cool riff, this uh, energetic, electric, sort of stompy folk song. We didn't obviously have a name for it yet. And we just had that beginning melody, that verse melody of, can you feel it? We were like, yeah, this was fun. Like, let's, let's see what we can do with this. All three of us just instantly, I don't know what it was, but there was just this magic in the air. 
And within two hours, we had the, the completed song. You know, it was just one of those ones that just fell out of us. You know, it was a very, very... Not, not, I don't want to say an easy song to write, but I, I feel like the best songs are the easiest to write. They just, there's just a way that they come out of somewhere and, and it just makes sense. Every melody you throw out, every hook you throw out, every theme that you put into it, it just makes sense. Like a jigsaw puzzle, all the pieces just fit into place very easily. We just couldn't stop playing it back to ourselves and Jay would just start playing that riff again and we'd just sing it again and when we got to that Say Geronimo hook, like we just, we, we, I just remember sitting around the table laughing because it was so much fun. We kind of booked in with our producer at the time. His name was Stuart Stewart, based in McDowell in Brisbane. And he'd done you know, pretty much the entire album for us at this point. And this Geronimo was a very last minute addition to the album. We'd already finished the album and we'd booked in with him again just to be like, hey, look, we've written this song. We find it so much fun. We've got to put it on the album. We'd done up a little demo, you know, Jason had, had done up a, a very rough demo of it and had like kind of the vibe we were looking for and the atmosphere that was going to be put into the track. And then we spent, uh, yeah, the next three weeks just just kind of crafting and, and perfecting this song. And I think it's important that we, we took as long as we did because a lot of sessions you, you walk in and you might spend a day or two on a song and then that's it. But we were kind of lucky that we knew that we had something special and we wanted to get it right. And so we spent two, three weeks just kind of going back into it. There was a bridge in there that isn't in there anymore, honing it down and making sure that the whole song felt like it flowed perfectly and all the dynamics, all the, all the peaks and troughs just made sense. And uh, yeah, we didn't lose any of that electric energy that it had when we were playing it around the dining room table. Added to the album as sort of a last song to join the others, did you know that it was one of the strongest on the record or did you ever feel that, wow, it's the last one, but it's going to be the big one? Yeah. I mean, we definitely knew that we had to put it on. I feel, I don't know if we knew that it was going to be this mega hit, but we just, we knew that we really loved it ourselves and that we just found it so much fun to play. We weren't really in any rush to release anything. You know, we had Let Me Down Easy, which was sort of making waves at radio at the time. We had no idea just how much of an impact Geronimo was going to have at radio for us. So yeah, I mean, I'm glad that we did <laughs> eventually put it on. And so now tell me about the song and the lyrics and and who came up with the title and what's it in reference to? Because I've seen a couple of variations of, of what it could be, but you tell me, we're going to the source now. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it just kind of came out as a bit of an accident. Uh, the actual like Geronimo hook it was just something fun to say. And um, the, the lyrics, we'd, we'd had the verse and the, the post-chorus, the, can you feel my love? But it just felt weird kind of going from, as I dove into the waterfall, can you feel? It just didn't quite like, there needed to be something in the middle of that that just uh, really picked up the energy. And um, almost as a joke, I, I just kind of went, say, Geronimo, say, Geronimo, say, just like, just, I don't know where it came from, but it just, it came to me and all of a sudden, Jason, he heard the extra little gap that you could put into it. So he goes, wait, wait, just go say, Geronimo, say, Geronimo. And, and it was just like this light bulb moment went off in all of our braids. We were like, this is so much fun. And it kind of makes sense with the rest of the song because- you know, the, the song itself is about taking a risk, taking a leap of faith, uh, not being afraid to, you know, I, like ultimately it's about rekindling a lost relationship um, and the risk that comes with that, you know, being brave enough to give it another shot. Um, but it's all full of these metaphors of, you know, jumping off a waterfall and, um, you know, just, yeah, essentially not being afraid to take that leap of faith. 
And uh, Geronimo, the term itself, I guess, harks back to World War One. I, I think it was, where people would uh, be jumping out of an airplane and, and to sort of kind of big themselves up and, and make themselves brave, they'd, they'd say this, this word Geronimo, which is in reference to um, uh, an American Indian chief who, who displayed some insane amount of bravery when he was like trying to defend his land uh, from the, from these invaders. And, you know, it was this army that he just could never stand up to or he would never win against, but he, he still stood there and defended his land, even though there was no chance of winning. And so there's, there's this like element of bravery surrounding that, that, uh, the soldiers in world war one would use to, to jump out of planes just to kind of make themselves feel a bit braver. And that's essentially, you know, where Geronimo comes from. What happens once the song's out and how quickly does it go from zero to a hundred for you after that song hits the charts? Well, I remember hearing it on um, the radio for the first time. We knew that it was coming and we did this, this, uh, this big countdown 10 days out. We started doing videos every day just with a, with a creative way to put a different number into a video you know, like holding a number in slow motion, jumping into the pool, that type of thing. So we created a little bit of buzz around the release of this song and just giving little snippets here and there. And and we knew people were kind of getting excited for it. But once I heard it on the radio, I think it was B105 that premiered it for the first time, the radio station here in Brisbane. I remember listening to it in the car. And as soon as it finished, I just got this like this cold chill of goosebumps run down my arms. I just, something felt different about it. Something felt unique, like we'd released something that uh, that was going to change our lives. And within three weeks, I think it was, yeah, I think it was about three weeks, it it, it went to number one on the ARIA charts, which for, for a band like ours, you know, we were independent at the time and we'd had absolutely no dreams of, of being able to do that with this song. But we were in Los Angeles at the time, we were doing a Muse Expo. It was like a, a showcase for labels and managers over there. And we were kind of watching it creep up the iTunes charts and um, Let Me Down Easy had gotten to number 18 on the iTunes charts. And that was sort of our most exciting thing that had ever happened to us, um, you know, being in the top 20 of the iTunes charts. And then I remember this one night that we were in Los Angeles, we watched as it, it sort of just drifted by 18 and we checked our, our emails and we'd realized that almost every radio station in Australia had added it to, you know, across the day, which is, which is. Uh, you know, unbelievable. It's just so, we were so grateful and lucky to have been able to get that. And then as time went on, it just kept on going, kept on going, climbing this iTunes charts until at like two in the morning, I was sharing a room with Jason and I was, you know, asleep, dead to the world, jet lagged. And Jason like tapped me on the shoulder at 2am and he goes, George, George, it's at number one on iTunes. And I was like, oh, cool. And then I just went straight back to sleep. <laughs> and then I woke up the next morning. I'm like, hey, did, was that was I dreaming that? What, what happened? And I checked my phone and there it was still sitting at number one on iTunes. And I just, I couldn't believe it. I, we was, I ran to my sister's room. We were like, yeah, have you seen this? This is incredible. I think we, we got back to Australia that week. It was around the same time that um, that Pharrell song, Happy, was well, breaking records for the longest time at number one. Somehow we managed to knock him off the number one spot and Geronimo was, was number one for three weeks straight. 
And uh, yeah, as an independent band, having recorded that in Brisbane, yeah, I mean, it was it was just a pinch yourself moment for us, like a, a real real dream come true. An unsigned or I guess independent band that gets to number one, but you're showcasing in the states. What happens next? Is it that labels start calling you? At what point do you go? Wow, now everyone wants to sign us. I'm imagining. We'd uh, just signed with Decca Records, which is a, a label out of the UK, but uh, they don't operate in you know the United States. So we've got to try and find a label over there that's interested that they can work with uh, that type of thing. So while we were signed in the UK, we didn't really have any other sort of representation around the world, and. You know, we, we managed to uh, broker a deal where we are still to this day independent in Australia and New Zealand, which is a, you know, a bit of a dream come true as well, because we sort of get to do what we want here and then just send it across to Decca to, to either take it or leave it type of thing, which is, which is really nice because we still have full creative control of our music. We write what we want. We get to, you know, dictate what artwork is on the cover, track list, all that type of stuff, which is, which is really fun. But yeah, we, we still needed to, you know, convince a label in the United States to, you know, be interested in working with us. But once Geronimo had hit number one, it was, like you said, it was phenomenal to see how many people came out of the woodwork to be like, like, who, who is this band? You know, because I mean, I can imagine Sony and Warner and all these like major labels in Australia would have just been like, what is going on? Who is this band? <laughs> like, what, you know, they would have been cracking the whip at their teams going, how did you let this happen? <laughs> But uh, the funniest part was we got a call from uh, this gentleman called Scooter Braun, who was Justin Bieber's, or he still is Justin Bieber's manager out of Los Angeles. And somehow he got a, he got a hold of the song and he got wind of it and realized that we didn't have any representation in the United States. And so he jumped on the phone and you know we took this call and I couldn't believe that I was I was speaking to Justin Bieber's manager, and he just. He kind of talked us through what he wanted to do and the opportunities that he could provide for us and how we were going to hate him because he was going to make us work so much. And, you know, we were just anything that he wanted us to do, we were going to do it. We we had this opportunity of a lifetime with this single and, yeah, we, we definitely wanted to make the most of it. So, you know, we signed with him as a manager and, and he was able to help us get uh, a record deal with Republic Records in the United States and um yeah we were kind of away over there he he asked us to come over for a couple of months and you know during that time we went over there we did the Ellen DeGeneres show we did uh late night with Jimmy Fallon um you know the today show in New York City we were just kind of you know on this whirlwind yeah yeah it was phenomenal it was absolutely phenomenal and you know I'm I'm getting opportunities to record with uh you know Zed the 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 producer you know, we're just we're just getting opportunities left, right, and center, which was which was an amazing time for us. Most bands want to get signed and have representation, but you cleverly were independent, and as you say, still sort of remain so in Australia. How does that work to your advantage? I mean, as you say, you own creative control of artwork, and and you can sort of dictate when you want to release music. Anyone listening to this that is in a band that maybe thinks, well, I'd like to do the way they did it. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it wasn't easy, and we definitely had to go back and forth a lot with uh, you know our lawyers and their lawyers, and and they weren't they weren't too forthcoming about it. But in the end, I, I think because we hadn't signed yet, and we had this this big hit with Geronimo, we, it kind of afforded us a little a little bit of leniency, and um, uh, yeah, we we had a bit of bargaining power in 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 a in a weird way. So 
we we kind of made it a bit of a, a a deal breaker if we couldn't remain independent because at the end of the day we we didn't want to be told what to wear and and you know who we had to sing with and who was producing us and what songs we were writing and what was on our album because that sort of defeated the whole purpose for us and uh, you know, we, we, we kind of pride ourselves on the fact that, that we do it all in-house here. So we've got a studio and our home and, uh, you know, Jason now produces everything. Um, you know, Amy, Jason and I will just sit in our studio and we get it all done. Um, you know, I've found the, the, the guy who does all of our artwork, this, this wonderful company called Arstania in Poland, which, you know, I, I reached out to them and we work very closely together. So it was just, it's something that we, we really enjoy doing. And I'm sure a lot of artists out there would feel the same way, but not a lot of them get the same opportunity. You know, you, you might sign with a major label and, and they've got all of the ideas that they want you to be or of who they want you to be. And, um, you know, and if, if you kind of disagree with them, then there's always this potential of them just putting you up on the shelf. So you're still signed with them, but then they just don't put any effort into you whatsoever. Uh, and you can't sign with anybody else and you're, you're really stuck in this kind of this limbo phase of uh, waiting for your contract to run out. And some of these contracts are just, you know, they're very deceptive. They're, they can be diabolical. You know, they have you for 15, 15 years or, or four albums or whatever comes first. But, you know, if they decide they don't want to put any more money into recording an album for you, then you're, you're kind of stuck. Um, so yeah, it was something that we'd, we'd known about and, you know, we'd watched a bunch of documentaries and we knew we kind of knew what record labels uh, could be like and we just really wanted to avoid any situation like that. And so then tell me how life changes after this song. I mean, you've sort of touched on it uh, as well, but maybe even if you can remember performing it live for the first time or even, you know, I remember reading about you playing uh, Rock in Rio in Brazil. I mean, that would have been amazing crowd-wise. Oh, that was that was a bit of a, a bittersweet show for us because – it was the biggest show we've ever played in our lives. There were a hundred thousand people in the crowd, which is like you can't even see to the horizon. And um, you know, we're, we're playing right before Sam Smith and Rihanna on the main stage on the Saturday night. So it was like the, the biggest slot that we'd we'd ever had. But we were still very much in our infancy as a as a like a professional touring band. Um, and this is kind of something that I I I do regret is that you know we didn't. We didn't really know how to tour, even though we had this massive, uh, massive hit song. And, uh, you know, we were still touring with backing tracks on an iPod, which is, um, you know, to anybody who's performing at that level is, is lunacy. You know, usually nowadays, you know, all these like professional touring pop acts, they'll have um, two dual laptops going at the same time. There's like a redundancy system and... Uh, you know, that's, that's something we know now. Um, but at the time we were touring with a very minimal crew. We had like two guys on our crew members, uh, two, two guys uh, on our crew and, um, yeah, just touring with this iPod, which had all our backing tracks and, and click, click track on it. And, uh, well, somebody stole it right before the show. <laughs> So, of course, we're in Brazil and we didn't really think about the fact that, you know, it wasn't a secure site and that, you know, anybody could just walk onto the stage, any of the, any of the like local stage tech. And then there's just an iPod sitting there on the, on the drum kit um, and someone nicked it. So an hour before the biggest show of our lives, uh, our entire show is on an iPod that gets nicked. You know, Dean, our drummer, he, he goes down to stage to start warming up, setting up the drums, all that stuff. 
And he's like, hey, did anyone take the iPod? And we're all looking around and no, no one's taking the iPod. What do you mean? What is not there? And he's like, it's not here. And it slowly dawns on us that it's been stolen. Honestly, I've never been more stressed in my life. We were thinking about, you know, asking Sam Smith, if we could use the helicopter to go back to our hotel. And Jay had all the tracks on his laptops and trying to find another way to get the tracks back, but it was just no time. And, uh, we, we had to, um, Dean downloaded an app, a metronome app on his, on his phone. <laughs> we just kind of guessed the BPMs of all the tracks and uh, we just had to play it without any of the uh, extra stuff that we've got in there. You know, all the extra synths that we can't play because we're all playing something else. And um, some of the songs were like extra fast. Some of them were like painfully slow. And so it was it was simultaneously the best and worst night of my life. <laughs> and I bet you never used an iPod ever again, right, after that? that yeah, we didn't. As soon as we got home, we, we upgraded the system. But uh, yeah, I know you just you have these moments that nobody really understands, and I'm sure that everybody in the crowd they didn't realize what was going on for us on stage. But it would have been like, oh, this is a little bit raw, it's a little bit bare, but uh, you know that's okay. Um, but for us on stage, we're just sweating, we're stressing out big time, uh, just trying to get through it as best we can. Now, tell me a little about siblings in a band together. Is that something that you thought you'd do? Is that a discussion that you had as younger kids? Uh, it was not really something that we'd talked about until we were in our 20s. I mean, Amy had finished high school. I was in Sydney studying acting. It wasn't even on my radar to become a musician or a singer or anything like that. I wanted to be in like, you know, theater and TV and movies and all that fun stuff. I was at acting school at the time and Amy had gone into university to study music. She's the one who really wanted to be in a band and pursue music. And she had an assignment that she had to do where she had to, I guess it was, she had to write an EP of pop songs with one lead single in particular. And it was just a really interesting exercise for her to do. She came to me and she goes, hey, next time you come back for holiday to Brisbane, there's a song that I want your help with. It was called Cheese on Toast. And it was about growing up in the 90s and all of these like fun references like Where's Wally and the Power Rangers and all this stuff. And so when I got to Brisbane, you know, we sat down and I'd been sort of teaching myself how to play piano back at acting school. There was a piano in the theater. So, you know, I definitely had a passion for music and I, you know, I was interested in writing music, but I just never really thought of it as a full-time professional career. Once we got down and, you know, we started writing this song together, it became really clear that, that we had a, a really great chemistry as siblings and our voices just blended really nicely together. I think that's tonally, we just... We fill different gaps when we when we harmonize, and I, I hear that that's something that's quite common with siblings and vocals. As time went on, we kept writing songs together. We eventually persuaded Emma to learn how to play the bass to be in the band, uh, which she did. You know, she went and did like a a really intensive bass boot camp with our primary school music teacher Baruka Tao. You know, I, I feel so lucky that I get to do this and live this journey with my family. You know, obviously we have our moments and, you know, we're just like any other siblings where we, we fight about silly things and we're not afraid to tell each other how we feel. But I, I feel like ultimately that that's, that's a, an advantage. You know, you, there's so many people that you just can't trust in this industry. A lot of people are kind of out to get you and take you for a ride. But being in a family and knowing that you can trust one another and be there for each other and have each other's backs, like that's, it's just invaluable to me. So I'm, I'm yeah, I'm really grateful. So I ask you, how life changed for you 
after this song and ways in which it probably won't go back to what it was before. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny uh, how you, you really take life before something like this for granted. You know, like obviously it's a phenomenal experience to be able to go and do all of these amazing things and, you know, perform on these you know, US TV shows and be able to collaborate with some incredible producers and songwriters and uh, all of the opportunities that are afforded to you. But uh, yeah, you know, you kind of lose your anonymity a little bit. You start to get a lot of hate on social media and all of this stuff that, you know, now is just going to be there as long as we keep making music. Um, which is which is a little bit of a shame, and all, and also success. It it does change the chemistry of the band. You know, like um, there was a period before the second album. You know, where Jason, Amy, and I we kept having these arguments and differences about what should come next. Like, what, what how do you follow up a massive hit like Geronimo? You know, we've got a we've got a number one hit that's taken us around the world. Like, how do you do that again? And yeah, everyone's got differing opinions about it. Whereas before that happens, you know, you're just you're just completely free. You're all working together to just make music because it's fun. And now all of a sudden, it's it's turned into a like a full time job with all of this pressure from your labels and managers wanting to wanting to just replicate what you've what success you've been able to achieve. So uh, that took us a little while to get over that and just realize that it is essentially it's supposed to be fun and we're doing this because it's our passion and we really enjoy writing music. And, you know, we, as soon as you start trying to fabricate a hit or, you know, trying to write a song for radio, then the whole thing is essentially broken. You know, there's no magic left. And it did, it, it did take us a little while after we'd written Geronimo to, to get back in the studio properly and start writing um, album number two because of that very reason. And, it's like they say, you know, you've got a lifetime to write your first album, but then you've only got a year to write the second album. Um, and, you know, we, we definitely felt that pressure. Uh, you know, we, we probably took about two years to write the second album, um, but people were like, hey, hurry up. You know, you gotta, you got to strike while the iron's hot here. You know, Geronimo's not going to be around forever. And, um, you know, it's very hard to kind of get it back once you've, once you've lost it. And so we're just kind of writing from this place of, of fear and, and pressure, which – yeah, like I said, it just it no magic comes from that, and so you've you've got to sit down and and just reconnect with yourselves as artists and musicians and, and songwriters, and you know realize that it's supposed to be fun and that you got to relax. It's not like you know you walk in not knowing that you're well aware, as you say. We can watch docos, we know about other bands, and we know those that find fame quickly and what happens next. It's like you're almost watching your future play out, but you're just trying for it to not be a car crash and be as, as smooth as possible. Well, that's right. And I think you can never really prepare for it, even though you do watch these doc documentaries. And it, until you actually live it and experience it for yourself, you, you just don't realize how intense it is. And, uh, you know, being on the road for, you know, four, five, six months at a time away from your friends and your, your, your loved ones, you know, your partners, all that stuff, it, it really kind of starts to take its toll on you. And, you know, we, we, we had a, a member of the band, Michael Butler, you know, it, it was it was a bit too much for him. And so he he decided to go back to uni and, and start studying something else, which is which is completely fair. And I, I totally understand, you know, it, it's not for everybody. And it's not until you get there and you're living it that you realize just how much of a, a job it can be. And, you know, finishing a show at, at 1 a.m. and then having to be on a on a flight at 6 a.m. So, you know, you're getting like three hours sleep 
only to get up and do a full day of promo and radio visits and interviews and then shows. It's just, it's full on and it really isn't for everybody. Yeah, it really is. And can I ask you finally too, I mean, in terms of what you take from this highlight in your career and have, I guess, just carried forward in, in music that you continue to make as Shepherd, what is, is it easy to sort of say, yep, what we did then is something that we still continue to do today? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like we, we learned so much from that experience of, of, you know, writing and touring Geronimo and that whole first album, you know, and we've brought all of that experience into albums too and, and especially album three. Like I feel like album three, Kaleidoscope Eyes, is where we've really kind of perfected what we were trying to do uh, in those first two albums. Yeah, I mean, we, we still enjoy writing these like big, energetic, uplifting, anthemic sing-along tunes, but in a weird way, like it's almost like that was a trilogy that's done now. We're about to start work on album four and, uh, you know, we're already starting to talk about how we want it to just be something completely different, something that really surprises not only us but our fans and and the label, something that's a bit more uh, experimental or like art pop or something like that. You know, we can start re-challenging ourselves and trying something new. You might have to come back yeah. to Melbourne and, and find yourself in a bar backstage somewhere again, George. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all the vibes are in Melbourne for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, although we, we've got all those albums, you know, that's 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 there now for everybody to listen to for all of time now. And, and you know, it's a body of work that we're incredibly proud of. Um, and, yeah, I'm not I'm not really sure where, where Shepard goes from here, but I know it'll be still very exciting for us and, uh, you know, hopefully for our, our audience and our fans. George, thank you so much for talking to me for some of my best work and sharing the journey of this song and what it means to your band. I really appreciate it. Of course, anytime. Jane, thank you for the chat. If you're enjoying the show, tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can get early and ad-free episodes by becoming a subscriber. Check out the episode notes for more information or the Mushroom channel in Apple Podcasts. I'm Jane Rocker. Thanks for listening.